Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. Oh, what up? And shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hag. With me, as always... The Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going? I just realized it's the Hague and the Hoff. The Hague and the Hoff. I don't know why my music just got loud again, but it did. Hang on. I'm That's sorry. Cool. I like it. <laughs> uh, as you can tell, our our technical <laughs> our technical abilities here are not that great. Hey, what up and shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. We're real happy that you're with us. Whether or not you're listening to us live here on Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock Pacific Standard Time or... Maybe you're listening to us on our podcast, trradio.com, or maybe you're watching us on YouTube. No matter what it is, we're happy that you're here. Uh, what up and shalom to everyone in the chat room. It's great to have you all here, and uh, it's uh, it's always interesting to see, you know, our conversation in the chat room starts about an hour before the show starts, and so it's always nice to see some of the back and forth with the people in the chat room. Uh, today's a little bit of a different day. Many of our listeners might notice that we don't have any show notes up today. We don't have show notes up, and we didn't send any show notes out. I don't even by have. The, sh- it's by design. It's by design. I don't even have show notes. Um, I put in the chat room earlier. Our our topic today is Kabbalism or Kabbalah. So uh, we just expect people to have a mystical experience and 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 uh, mystically enjoy the show notes uh, that way. Um, anyway. Uh, today, as always, our engineer at our engineering desk is Gary Springer. Uh, Mark Randall is running our chat room and our websites. And of course, our show is only made possible because of the generous support of our listeners. So thank you to everyone who supports us. And, uh, yes, of course, this show is produced and provided by TorahResource.com. You can find all sorts of great products and free articles at torresource.com and you can also and controversial blogs that's right let's talk about that real can quick I, can i i uh someone friend of mine like sent me a message through facebook last week saying hey i've i'm talking to these people they're really upset about your review of of the aramaic english new testament by andrew gabriel roth and i don't know what to do and i said well tell them to post to post if they have comment put it on the put it on the website you know that's what it's there for and just it was like he's like oh okay so like just a few hours later boom this person named carmen posted uh on the blog and it's like wow because you know sometimes this blog has been around when did it when did we put that was february mid-february so what is it now it's mid late may so it's been up for a couple months um, kind of hadn't received much interest. Oh, lately. but we got interest now. <laughs> yeah. No. So anyway, I don't know. I don't know Carmen if Carmen is a male or a female. Uh, so I don't like. I don't know if I should say he or she. So Carmen, if you're listening, forgive me. I don't know. I'll just assume he. But I don't know. There's a lot of women that are really. Yeah. Where in the world? Where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Yeah. But it, 
it says that I am spewing vitriol, which is like acid, basically. Acidic <gasps> criticism. Yeah, let's just and, add, that's the that's the opening that's the opening comment by this. Ever heard by of the term lashon hara? <laughs> it says, uh, "Where in Scripture are we allowed to bash someone's character and reputation?" And then it said, "Do any of your illustrious and even illiterate camp followers did any of them contact Roth personally?" Um, anyway, it goes on the saying, "I was condescending." And um, look, I, I, I got to jump in here before we read some of your responses. And, the, and your responses, of course, are, are gentle, eloquent, and, of course, hit the nail right on the head. Uh, but I just have to say, if you, we've said this so many times on this show before. If you are going to put yourself out there, you know, with self, now that we, now with the invention of the Internet and with Amazon and the ability to self-publish, Okay, everyone and anyone who wants to write a book can do so. It's not difficult. You put the words down on the page. You put it down into a uh, you know a file editor. You, you get it all ready. You create a cover. You upload it. And you can pr- self-produce your own book. And then you can create your own website. And you can sell it right on your own website. It's not hard. And uh, so with that being said, if you're going to put out a book, then expect that it's going to be critiqued. And if you don't have the credentials to put out a book, then, uh, you know, expect that to come up. The fact is, is that Andrew Gabriel Roth has, uh, you know, zero training in Aramaic. At least this is the mind you, this is the fifth edition. (laughs) This book has been out. It's not like we're hunting (laughs) books. to. This is the fifth edition. I don't know how many they've sold. And it's very prevalent in the Messianic movement. And and I had people, you know, people are asking me questions about it. And I looked at it and I had, I was compelled. How dare you, Rob? How dare you? Reply. This person says, uh, <laughs> I have a suggestion for you. Actually read all capital and study all capital, the A-E-N-T, and it's awesome footnotes and appendices. So but you but can back but up that your hateful but, statements with but, some actual knowledge. But hang on, that shows a lack of knowledge from this person themselves. They're saying that you, you know, you aren't giving Andrew Gabriel Roth a fair shake. But the point is, is that it seems as now that this person uh, is not aware of the horrendous mistakes made in the AENT, even though you've spelled out a lot of them. And not, well, maybe not even, I shouldn't even say a lot of them. You've spelled out some of them in your review. Right. But listen, okay, let me, let me, let me be the one who, to, uh, to read one of Rob's response, responses here. Hi, Carmen. I can see this review has hit a nerve. <laughs> it's not clear, uh, it's not clear that you've actually read my comments. FYI, Tor Resource sent more than one certified letter to Roth seeking contact without receiving a reply. So, uh, we we sent multiple certified letters to Andrew Gabriel Roth asking for his credentials, among other things, and and where he studied Aramaic, because we felt that it was uh, quite clear that he had not studied Aramaic because of uh, you know under a in a formal setting, I should say, uh, it se- seemed a little bit self taught. Yeah, there's no question he's he's put time and effort into looking at Aramaic, and he's a nice guy. Well, I, you know, people from Tor Resource have met Andrew uh, before. Um. Anyway, okay. Anyway, we don't have to. We don't have to keep it. It's just 
two things. One is I'm glad that it means that the article's still circulating out there. You know, sometimes with, with the Internet, it's like you think it's like flash and it's gone. And there's new news every day and people move on. So uh, to me, I, I'm like, wow, that's I, I like the fact that it's shown, I don't know, it's three months. Is that enduring on the Internet? That's <laughs> enduring. But, but still, no one's replied with a to go point by point and say, actually, Van Hoff's wrong here and this is why. You know, no one bothered to do that. What they'll do is say, oh, you're just Lashon Hurrah. It's awesome. The book's awesome, and you're just doing Lashon Hurrah. Well, that's because nobody has a good response to it. That's because, you're, that's because your review is right on the money. Okay, let's move on. Um, so yesterday, actually, let's do this first. Last week we talked about, I'm going to close this down. Last week we talked about Calvinism versus Arminianism. Um, and we got some rather heated responses to that. I don't think I don't think Rob has seen any of the heated responses. Most of them have been online. That's okay though. We like heated responses every once in a while. But the person who originally wrote the question into us uh, wrote again to us, and uh, she writes. Well, she she wrote uh, a bit, and then uh, I pulled the the new part of of her comment. She says the quote Calvinist idea of predestination sounds like humanistic elitism to me. You probably don't mean it that way, but it comes off that way. This debate means nothing if we don't figure out how your understanding and my understanding plays out in how we serve and witness for God. This was the meat of my original email. Okay, that's that's fair, and I thank you once again for the follow-up email. I, you know, I, we say this a lot and even if we disagree with people, it's really, really nice to get emails and to, uh, to have interaction from people because it helps us, uh, address things on the show and it actually gives us content for the show. So keep the emails coming people. We, we really do. We read them all, believe it or not. And, uh, we really do enjoy them. Okay. Uh, so the point here, I think, what do you think the, 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 Originally, I had trouble understanding this question. What do you think the meat of the question is, Rob? I think the meat of the question is, don't we have more important things to do? Well, that okay, that's one don't, of the... Don't I, we have more important... I mean, why are we... And someone even said, yeah, it's like pointless. It's like wasting seed. Someone made a comment about that. Like, Like, why are we spending any energy talking about this? Because... When the rubber meets the road, we all, uh, as disciples of Yeshua, are to pray and seek opportunities to share with others the good news. And so, in one angle, I understand that. I understand that that why that it's a fair question to ask, and I think we touched on it a little bit last week. What, what do you do? You think that's what it boils down to? Well, I think that that's that might be part of it. I think what she's actually saying is, is how am I going to approach? You know, how am I going to approach evangelism differently than you is what I'm kind of getting from it. The point is this. There's there's two folds. There's two aspects of this that I see. But I think what I meant. Okay. Let go me, for it. Before you go. Yeah, go. What I mean to say is could it be a rhetorical question? Like she's implying that the answer is there is no difference. You, you and I are both going to do no, the I, same thing. I, I, so I why think, are we wasting our time? Well, it might be. But I think that she's actually genuinely asking a question here. Oh, okay. And I think that because she's she's now written twice asking the question. Uh, so, so there's two aspects of this. Number one, I think that it's important because uh, the, 
what we are what the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism is actually doing is investigating how God saves people. So it not only speaks of his, of soteriology, that is the study of salvation itself, which is a very important subject, but it also speaks to the characteristics of God. Um, yeah. yeah, and so uh, you know the study of of um, of God himself, I think, is is greatly important. How would a so that's one aspect of it. That's why that's why I think uh, first and foremost this is a, a, an important topic. The, the second thing is, is how, how does this affect our, our witnessing to people in, in evangelism? Well, I think it does affect it. And the reason why is because um, if I am speaking to someone and I believe that I am the one who can't, who, who has to, like, if I don't give them the gospel, then they might not come to the gospel then I, I'm going to approach that situation differently. The same goes for my, my children. If I think, oh, well, if I, don't, if I don't spank them enough or if I don't teach them right, they'll be lost forever. What that does, as opposed to the view of, I am an instrument that God will use for something that he's already predestined. If I'm not used for that, some, someone else might be. What that does, what the difference is, is one place's hope in self and the other places hope in God. I once worked with a, a passionate believer in the Lord, but an Ar- Arminianist, Arminian. Ist. You know, <laughs> and he, he had, he was really uh, impressed by a sermon that he heard that was put this way. It's like, imagine like the, and the phrase was the Bema seat of Christ. The judgment seat, the bema seat. He used the word bema, which is the Greek word, and the rabbis use it. It's a Greek word meaning judge, seat of judgment. The bema seat of Christ in the judgment where you're going to have to look and you're going to see all the souls that are going to hell that you had the opportunity to share the gospel with but didn't, and they're going to hell. And you're going to be in heaven looking, and you're going to be weeping. And Do you want to be sad on that day? Do you want to be on that day standing there in the judgment seat of of or the bema seat of Christ, weeping because of all those lost souls that you could have saved, but you didn't because you, it was let's say it was out of your way or you were too busy or you were afraid or whatever. But you want that on your conscience when you're in heaven. That was his story, and he was mo- that motivated him. Yeah, I think it's I you know I I think the ultimate uh, answer to that is is that. If I think that I am the one who is has to uh, bring these people to Christ, that it's it's me or nothing. That I could I could be the reason a person doesn't come to Christ. I'm putting my I'm putting it on me. It's a work that I'm doing to bring people to Christ. If I believe in predestination, so why would God let you go into heaven then? Hang on, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. If, but like, like Caleb, Caleb, you, I'm sorry. Here's the bema seat, Caleb. John Jacob Jingleheimer over there is going to hell because you didn't share. So his his well, eternal. Well, I don't think that that's a that's going to be a valid argument because the Arminian, uh, the person who holds to Arminian theology, is going to say, "Well, you're saved because of the blood of, of the Messiah." The other person has free will, but the point is, is that to to say that I'm I might be the reason a person goes to heaven or hell 
is to put faith in myself and not in God. What what a what free will does is say that God does not encroach in a person's will to accept him. And therefore God is taken out of the equation. Therefore it's up to that person and me, the evangelist. What a predestination view does is it puts it back onto God. It is up to God to bring the person to him. It is God's work, not a man's work. Okay, let's move on. So uh, there's a couple different ways that we could go. I hope that answers the question, by the way. We need a move on clip. Yeah, I know. Actually, I... We need like a... I know. I need to get new sound effects now. You know, Maybe it's, something on the train theme. Something on the all aboard. It's like, okay, we're leaving that... <laughs> Even that station. I gotta say, it's difficult because uh, you know we don't have people sending us clips. Uh, save recent open. Uh oh, that's not what I wanted. I apologize. I'm messing around with my program here. Um, uh, Robert in the chat room just made a good. He says, I, "I don't think we all see it like that, Caleb. It's not at all about me sharing. Hopefully, God sends someone else to share." That's up to God. No, I, I would agree with I would agree with Robert on that. Yeah, I'd agree with that too. But the I mean it, that means it's not up to God, which once again brings it back to a works based salvation. It's either my work or it's somebody else's work. It's not God. That's not the way that the scriptures speak. The scriptures speak that it is up to God. That God right, and that's that's Robert's point makes that point. So yeah, so that's one of the issues we're uh, confronted with when we think about that. I don't know why, but I don't have all my clips here. And that's annoying to me. That's all right. <sighs> okay. Well, I should say before we enter this topic, this has been a very nerve wracking week for me. Reason being, I've been studying uh, nonstop, basically, even at work, nonstop. I've been studying. It's nice that I have a job where I can read. And I have a library that I can go into and look at anytime I want to. So basically my job, yeah, be envious people because I, I have to say I've felt very, very blessed this week that I have a job like this. Um, basically I'm preparing for the UMJA conference, not the UMJC. I don't want anyone to get that confused. The UMJA conference in Spokane, which is over the uh, the Father's Day weekend. A lot of Wait, that's our, just like a that's like a month away. Yeah, it is, and a lot of our friends are going. It's going to be a really good time. And actually, I think every single staff member at Tor Resource, except for Ariel Berkowitz, every single staff member member is going to be presenting. Last year, everybody. Last year, everybody did present, including Ariel. Yeah, right. I think Ariel was there. So this year, I I've actually been uh, blessed to give uh, been given two slots. So uh, normally. A slot is usually an hour long. I've been given two separate slots, which means I get two hours to present. The nice thing about the uh, UMJA conference is that they're very—they're actually being very gracious to me because um, the, um, the UMJA conference is, is initially for leaders within the UMJA organization. Now, we're not part of the UMJA, so there's that, first of all. Um, but the second thing is... Pardon me while I cough. The second thing is is um, that while Rob is a teacher, Gary is a teacher, my father Tim Haig is a teacher, um, I am not a teacher. I'm not a scholar. I'm not a teacher. I don't teach classes in any 
any respect. Uh, I am not a leader of a community. I don't teach at a community. Nothing. In fact, all I do is, I, I, and I've never claimed to be any of those things. Some, sometimes people, I find it interesting that sometimes people uh, say, oh, you guys claim to be scholars. Actually, I don't claim to be a scholar. And I don't think Rob has ever actually claimed to be a scholar. I call him a scholar because he's uh, done the, he's paid the money <laughs> to go to a, a college and he's put in a lot of, of time to, to earn degrees and to become uh, a member of the scholarly world. And so I would consider Rob a scholar. I, however, am not. So uh, it's very nice that the uh, UMJA is allowing me to present papers at their conference because what it does for me is it gives me a chance to be, review, uh, to be peer-reviewed by my teachers. Uh, sometimes when you uh, present a paper in a school you know, what happens? Your teacher reads it, he gives you an A or an F or somewhere in between, and uh, you go on your way. Uh, very rarely is a student actually able to get up in front of people that is not just his classroom and present and have to talk and uh, present uh, different views and, and whatnot, and then to be critiqued by that listening audience. So um, I'm very blessed to be able to do that, and uh, and so I've been studying very hard and my topic is actually Hasidic Judaism. And it's a little bit more provocative than that. I'm not exactly sure uh, what was my, what was my uh, paper title. I think it was Hasidic versus Messianic. Uh, uh, no, uh, Friend or Foe, Hasidic versus Messianic. Uh, should we emulate? Or I forget, something like that. I can't even remember the name of my paper. I made it Is it on the fly? I, I posted the link to the flyer. Is it on the newest flyer? It, mu- uh, it, it should be on the newest flyer, but I don't know. I haven't looked at it. Anyway, so all this to say, um, today, uh, yesterday, Monday, we had the day off, and we did things with our families. At least I did. And um, so we didn't have our normal meeting on Monday, and so we scrambled yesterday to have a meeting. We got to it late, and... Um, we didn't know what we were going to talk about, Rob, and I didn't know what we were going to talk about. And I said, you know what, my, my brain is so much in this uh, one subject, this one topic, that I think that we should talk about that to an extent. Now, obviously, I don't want to try to give my, my paper <laughs> or even aspects of my paper on the Robin Caleb show because uh, I want it to be fresh and, and, and uh, be critiqued at the conference, and then we will make it available to everyone once it's uh, recorded. But uh, one of the things that I'm really diving into and learning a lot about right now is the Kabbalah. And I think that the Kabbalah is a very hot topic. It's a hot topic not only in, uh, in Judaism and even in Messianic Judaism. Okay. Ah, there we go. Uh, uh, thank you, Adam. Adam po- posted... <laughs> <laughs> Adam had to post the name of my of my article so that I could remember it. My article will be will be titled "Counterfeit or Comrade: Hasidic Judaism versus Messianic Faith." Uh, so yes, that is, <laughs> and of course, yeah, part one and part two. So, um, anyway, so we see a lot of of. Uh, Kabbalah, or if you can say it multiple ways, Kabbalah, it depends how you want to say it. We see a lot of that in uh, Judaism, of course, but we also see it now rising up outside of Judaism. And one of the reasons I think that is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, 
One of the reasons I think that is is because people are naturally drawn to several different things. One is Eastern religion, and I think that they're they're drawn to Eastern religion because it gives somebody um, the ability to have a new experience. Help me out, Rob. Quit looking at the chat. <laughs> um, to 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 be able to have a uh, mystical experience, if you will, right? To get get to a different plane, and uh, I think that Hasidic Judaism, and not just I shouldn't say just Hasidic Judaism, but Kabbalah in general, does the exact same thing. Um, and not only that, but I think a lot of it's based on Eastern religion. Okay, Rob, you're laughing. Well, we know, we know, I mean, this, there's a, there's a whole world of Jewish mysticism from the Middle Ages on. A lot of it, some of it draws from uh, Islamic Sufi mysticism. I mean, that's Moshe Idel. He's like one of the main Jewish scholars at Hebrew University on Jewish uh, mysticism. And he points out that some of the uh, Jewish mystical practices were adopted from Sufism. You yeah, know, I mean it, it's it's, and then Hasidism. I, I'm glad. I'm looking forward to your paper, Caleb, because I know you you touched on a little bit this la- a little of it last year with the notion in our in your talk at UMJA, and and there was a paper you were working on, uh, for a different project that had to do with the place of the tzaddik in uh, Hasidic Judaism, and I think it's an important topic because I think. With the internet and with marketing out there, it's so easy to go, oh, this is the authentic Judaism. You know, looking at Hasidism, because outwardly it looks like pious, like pious Torah observance. It's like, wow, you know, if anybody's observing Torah, it must be those guys. But we need to, we need to take time to discern, develop discernment. Well, the what whole, say? The, the whole, yeah, I totally agree with you. The whole reason that I wanted to do uh, touch on this topic is because I think that a lot of people within uh, messianic messianic faith they come at they, you know they come out of the church they see Judaism and what do they see? What do you think when you when you think Orthodox Judaism? What do you think? And I think that a lot of people. I know that for a long time, my mind, if I thought Orthodox Judaism, what I automatically thought was black hat, you know, wearing black and white, uh, black velvet keepas, a payout, right? Um, And maybe uh, Schneerson was somebody I would think of in Orthodox Judaism, perhaps. Um, And those things aren't actually Orthodox Judaism. Those things are Hasidic Judaism. And there's a difference between Orthodox Judaism and Hasidic Judaism. Actually, what's the book that you referenced the other day? Um, the Shal Magid one? It was the one uh, where the Orthodox were basically bashing the <laughs> bashing the Hasids. It was, oh, yeah. It, uh, it's uh, Masora.org. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're like a real rationalist stream of, of Orthodox Judaism. They, they, all, they, like have nothing. they think like Chabad is like idolaters and magicians and stuff like that okay so before we go on with uh, kabbalah which I, I i know we've set it up and everything but i wanted to say that yesterday i i was frustrated and i put up on the website we're looking for topics for the robin caleb show and we got a lot of really really good feedback and I, I actually wanted to touch on just a couple of them 
I wanted to do it before we got into Kabbalah, Kabbalah, but it seems like we've already dived in, right? I totally forgot. So maybe we should just keep going with this line of thought. If I could, if I could bring Rob back from the chat room, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> uh huh. I see. Rob just keeps. Uh, I mean, he is. I I think I gotta. We gotta kick Rob out of the chat room at some point. Um, Rob, don't listen to that. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, let's see here. I'll behave. Okay. Um. So let's talk about Kabbalah. For, Kabbalah, Kabbalah, however you want to say it. Let's talk about that for a few seconds. What is the doctrine of, of Kabbalah? Actually, do you, should we do this first? Should we do the, our book review first? Yeah, if you want. Okay. We'll just do a quick, a quick introduction. Okay, so one of the books that I am reading now, let me put this in here. One of the books that I'm reading now for uh, to prepare for said uh, lectures at the UMJA conference is this book called Hasidism Incarnate. Hasidism, Christianity, and the Construction of Modern Judaism by Shaul Magid. Um, I've only read the first part of this, uh, the first part of this book, um, just the introduction. So, Rob, I'll give you my my uh, thoughts first. Rob's read this book and is in his second reading of this book. So, um, I'll give you my thoughts, and then I want you to come in and tell me uh, where I'm wrong, or maybe expand on what I'm saying. First, Shaul Magid is a Jewish man, right? And where does he teach? I think Indiana University or something like that. But he's Orthodox, right? I, I assume so. I, I think he he tells a little bit about himself. He was, I think, he was a Breslover for a while. Breslov, the Breslov uh, sect is a sect. Yeah, of, like he's studying the yeshiva in in Jerusalem for years too. So. So the Bre- he's, an, he's writing as an academic now in this book. So the Breslovers are, are a sect of Hasidic Judaism. So basically what I get from Magid in, this, in, this, in the introduction alone, this is what I've gotten from him. Before John wrote his gospel and put what we call Logos theology down into pen and paper, if you will, uh, Logos theology was already extant within the Jewish communities. Correct me if I'm wrong at any yeah, point. Yeah, that's and that uh, Daniel Boyarin and others have really tried to hammer that point down. Like Daniel Boyarin's another Orthodox Jewish scholar who's made that point. That in other words, when John wrote the first lines of the Gospel of John, there were Jews uh, in the world that would hear that, and it would not sound strange. It wouldn't sound strange at all. The 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 twist, Boyarin would argue, would be that there were Jews that. They go okay. They listen along. Like, hey, that's no problem. No problem. Right when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and it's it was Yeshua of Nazareth. That's where those Jews. Wait a minute. See, but but that's where the rub. That's where all of a sudden they're adding a new element now. But what I'm getting from what I'm getting from Magid is that he's saying that the I, the Logos theology. There was part. There was some people before. John wrote his gospel that believed that the Lagos could would actually become incarnate. So there was the there was the theology the theology already existed that the Word was with God and the that and it was God and that it would at some point become incarnate. But once once John wrote his gospel and applied that to and applied it to Yeshua, the Jewish community said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, okay, wait, hang on, let's rethink this." And then they basically said, "No, we never believed that." Am I am I off on that? 
Well, it, it, it wasn't so cut and dried because you have the Targumic traditions that talk about the Memra, etc. And it, it, takes, it takes centuries for the rabbis to slowly parse out and distance themselves from what Boyarin called Logos theology. But Magid, though, well, Magid does talk about that in Hasidism Incarnate. What he wants to talk about is Hasidism uh, in the 1700s that emerges, 1800s, and how incarnation is a word that that can get us some understanding and some comparative uh, perspective that other Jewish scholars before Magid didn't want to use the word. They didn't want to use the word incarnation because it because sounded of too, quote, Christian. Christian. yeah. And what Magid is saying is saying, wait a minute, to be if we're going to use just weights and measures, we have to look at some of these early Hasidic sources from the 1700s and 1800s and say, look, these guys are basically talking that the tzaddik more or less is like a type of incarnation. It's a type of union with God that then benefits. We have to explain this. Oh, hang on. We have to explain this a little bit because if we have a Christian audience right now, if we, which we, I'm sure we do, there are people listening who are in the Christian church. They don't know what in the world we're talking about. So the Hasidic. Isn't that the truth every show? Yeah. But the Hasidic. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Nothing but, against our Christian brothers and sisters. I just mean this just because we're kind of random. Um, the, the belief from a Hasidic view, uh, one of the things that the Baal Shem Tov kind of changed in Kabbalah, and maybe we should talk about Kabbalah first, but, but I guess we'll work backwards. One of the things that the Baal Shem Tov, he was, a 17, he was in the 1700s, okay, and so the 18th century. What he did was he changed Kabbalah, well, I shouldn't say changed Kabbalah, actually Luria, Itzhak Luria changed Kabbalah, if you will. Uh, Kabbalah came about in the 1300, uh, 13th century, and then um, a little bit later you have Lurianic Kabbalah, and that's a different form of Kabbalah. And uh, then the Baal Shem Tov came along, and uh, this is after uh, Shabbatai Zavi, and uh, I could, we, could, we could get into all this right now, but it's a lot of history that would need to be touched on. Anyway, so you have these different movements that are cropping up within Judaism, and uh, after a while, a lot of them are seen as heresy, okay? And, uh, and, but there's still huge, huge movements within, uh, within Judaism. And uh, you have the Baal Shem Tov who comes along. The Baal Shem Tov is not a very well-learned man from everything that I can gather. In fact, uh, you have a lot of the Kabbalah and the, and the Kabbalistic belief coming from the unlearned. Yeah, it's like folk. It's like folklore, folk tradition. Yeah, and so what, what you really what, – what the what mainstream – I don't know if I can even use that word, but what, what I would call mainstream Judaism within that time – basically taught was that you become close to God by study of Torah. So if you want to be close to God, what do you do? You come into the city, you live in the city, and you come to school. And you come close to God by going to a Jewish school, and you study the Torah. And the more you know about Torah and the more you know about Talmud and Mishnah, this is how you come close to God. That was the what I would consider the mainstream if if we can use a general term like that, the mainstream view of Judaism at the time, what did that do for Judaism? Well, here, yeah, if I might add too, because the underlying doctrine was is that you have the Yetzer Hara, which is this evil inclination, and God gave the Torah gave Torah study as an antidote. The only way that you can avoid according to according the to Yetzer yeah. Hara is by being in the 
the yeshiva all day studying the Talmud. So that's, that's how you as, get, yeah. That's as close as you're going to get to God. That's the tr- you know traditional rabbinic angle. So uh, within, within Judaism at the time, you had these Kabbalists, okay, and this is later on. Now we're uh, now we're past the the formation of the Zohar and what we would consider traditional Kabbalah, which was the 13th century, right around the 13th century. Let's move forward. We're gonna because what I'm actually trying to do right now is talk uh, about the Zadik and uh, and t- explain this book a little bit better. Um, but so you already have Kabbalah and you have Lurianic Kabbalah come in in the in the 1500s. And then towards the end of the 1500s, what do you have? You have the Baal Shem Tov. Now, many people don't realize that the Baal Shem was actually not a person. The Baal Shem was a job title. The Baal Shem was the Jewish equivalent of a witch doctor. I don't know how else to to explain it. Like a shaman. Yeah. Basically, what he would do is you would have a Baal Shem in your city. And uh, your child would get sick. Let's say your child has... You know, the chicken pox or whatever, okay? You think your child's going to die because he's got these spots all over him. What do you do? You call the Baal Shem. The Baal Shem is going to come. He's going to come in. He has this chart and he has all these things. He's going to say some prayers and he's going to arrange letters in different ways to create the name of God, the sacred name of God. And uh, in, crea- in, in putting these letters a certain way and saying these prayers, uh, he, your child will become healed. And maybe give you an amulet or some yeah, sort give of you a, uh, exactly. formulaic prayer that you need to read. Yeah, like a prescription. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what the Baal Shems were. And guess what? The Baal Shem Tov was, in fact, one of these Baal Shems. Yeah, that's not on his birth certificate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay, which one's your first name? <laughs> no, his first name was, yeah. Anyway, so, so that's why we call him the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, the Baal Shem Tov was the uh, the keeper of the great name. Okay, but but the Baal Shem was really a job title. So and it was not an institutionalized. It was just a folk. Uh, yeah, like it was a grassroots folk type of shamanism. Uh, from all the books that I've read, and I'm talking every single book that I've read about that references the Baal Shem and gives any history of the Baal Shem Tov. What they say about the Baal Shem Tov is that he did not excel in his studies. That he that his teachers basically finally said, you know what, he's a lost cause. Don't don't worry about him. And what did he do? He'd go out into the woods and he would he would just chill out in the woods. Okay, and so um, it's basically universally accepted that he was not a great Talmud s- scholar, which was contrary, as we've already said, to the traditional Jewish view that if you wanted to be close to God, you had to be in a school. So what was new about the Baal Shem Tov? He said, oh, uh, Mark wants a specific, you know, I don't even have that uh, sound clip, Mark. I'm sorry. Anyway, um, oh, wait, what? Maybe I do. And on the twist of a word, <laughs> everything changes. <clears throat> what the Baal Shem Tov changed was that he said, no, it's not the study of Torah in the school that gets you close to God. It's personal experience that gets you and, close and to God. God is everywhere. God's everywhere. He's not just in the school. He's everywhere. You don't have to be studying Talmud yeah. to, to experience. And it's not about prayer. It's, it's like it's just about experiencing. But, he would, but, yeah, but he said that the best way to experience God was through prayer. 
Yeah, but, but, but it, what I meant to say is that it doesn't have to be the fixed type of liturgical prayer. Yes and no, because, uh, because what, eventually what came out of Hasidic Judaism was the idea that each, each tribe of, of Israel, the 12 tribes, each tribe was given from the Most High a specific prayer book. <clears throat> and that, and that uh, now we'll talk about the repairing of the world here in a few minutes, but the idea that, uh, that tikkun olam, okay, and if you're messianic, uh, then you might have heard of the phrase tikkun olam. And a lot of messianics use this term not realizing the implications that tikkun olam actually carry with it. If you're messianic and you're and that is part of your uh, Jewish repertoire to say tikkun olam, <clears throat> pardon me, please lose that because it carries a lot of implications that you probably are unaware of. Um, basically, though, the I we'll get to tikkun olam here in a few minutes, but the idea of of each individual tribe of Israel having their own prayer book given from the Most High was. That if you were in, let's say I'm from the tribe of Judah, if I pray the prayer book that was given to the tribe of Judah, then I am doing the most. Like I'm really helping the one of the seven upper worlds to to in the celestial fight between demons and angels or whatever. It's not even demons and angels. Actually, what it really is, is God. God fighting himself. Now we're really getting into Kabbalah because this, it sounds super weird, but that's because Kabbalah is super weird. Basically the way, and now correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, because this is how I see Kabbalah. And I'm not talking about Lurianic Kabbalah. I'm not talking about Hasidic Judaism now. I'm just talking about Kabbalah from the 13th, from the 13th century. The way that I see Kabbalah from the 13th century is this. What people were doing was saying, what happened before the fall of man? And we've touched on this a little bit. We've touched on, okay, angels, demons, were they before the fall? All that kind of stuff. And what Kabbalah was doing was trying to come up with the story of God and how God created the world. Right. And so what you have is you have basically um, the Ensof, which is... Uh, the concept of eternity, God's eternity, our brains, our minds, our human con- uh, constraints cannot fathom God's eternity. We can't, you know, we can try to fathom infinity, but it, but basically what the ensof is, is this concept of God that we can't grasp. That's what the ensof is. Everything comes from the ensof. And, and so, and so is just the, it. Really, that entered in through Greek philosophy. The idea of infinity. That Ainsof just means without. It means unlimited, un, uh, infinite. Yeah, but I think that the that when the 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 Kabbalists use Ainsof, they're using it in a in a turn in a way of the ungraspable the ungraspable elements of God, his infiniteness. And that would be infinite in everything. So he's infinite in love. He's infinite in uh, time. He's infinite in space. All these things, right? Or, or do you? Th- or would yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. But I think the idea. I mean, we don't have the word "ain't so" <laughs> occurring until after. It seems like there's some Greek influence 
that gets into into the rabbinic world. This is what happens when I don't have my show notes. I'm all over the place. I apologize, everyone. So let's go back real quick because we were we were taught we were trying to get to the the philosophy of the Zadik. So basically, what happens is you have the Balsham, you have all these world things going on, uh, these these world events going on. Uh, that are making uh, the Jewish communities, this is the 1700s, they're looking now, they think that they're in the end times, and they're, they're convinced that the Messiah is going to show up any moment. And so what happens to Kabbalah is that it shifts a little bit. It shifts to a very messianic expectation kind of mindset. And uh, enter the Baal Shem Tov and his philosophy, and really his students are the ones who really took his philosophies and really ran with them. Basically what they said was that, and what this book argues is that um, the Hasidic theology came out saying that we need an intermediary between us and God. And that that intermediary there, what was the, uh, you sent me something, Rob, that talked about how, the uh, the sacrifices that Israel gave were actually given to in honor of the of the tzaddik. So this intermediary that uh, that the Hasids are now coming up with is called the tzaddik, which means the righteous one or the righteous man, the tzaddik. And the yeah, tzaddik in in early Hasidism, so in the seventeen hundreds, is the person that is a special person that has a charisma. And they have they they have well they don't necessarily have any Talmudic learning. Most of them didn't really have uh, that. Some did, but their concern is not stringency of halakha, but rather some sort of what they called mystical union with God. Well, and not only that, but we have to remember that that the the Kabbalah actually brought in um, reincarnation. Sure. And so, but, yeah. Oh, so you'll read. You can read about you know the er- early uh, Hasidic tzaddikim or tzaddiks that claim to be yeah I'm an incarnation of the prophet Samuel or I I was I was a scribe for Jeremiah and then I I was someone else like they actually have a list of lifetimes that they say that they were and that now they're you know new incarnation. Don't you love uh, how it's never something like not cool. Like, oh, yeah, I was a great rabbi, but then I screwed up because I proclaimed myself the Messiah. And then the next, you know, my next life, I actually was shoveling manure on a farm. You know, I was the farmhand. Well, and then these, <laughs> so the tzaddik then in that theology would have a group of people around it that didn't have the capacity to um, experience God directly. And but, so what he would do, he would share, yeah. share, he would like transmit to them his experience and then they would benefit from him. But without him, they would not have any salvation. Well, and not only that, but the, the Zadik had uh, essentially attained perfection through all the different lives. Now the Zadik has come to like the end point. When, once the Zadik dies, then he's done it. He's reached perfection, and now he's uh, taken up to the, a higher realm of, of consciousness or a, a higher heaven. Um, so basically, there's ten different uh, aspects of God that Kabbalah, traditional Kabbalah, comes up with. And basically, what it says is that before the fall of man, that uh, that our realm. What are you laughing at? 
you you got to quit looking at the <laughs> I, I kick him out somebody kick him out <laughs> no so the okay so they got the tzaddik the reincarnation so but yeah but the the the, the 10 sefirot are, were basically d- different elements of god and the lowest sefirot which and it's it's so weird because they basically bring sin into the world by saying that that uh that god or that the Shekinah, the spirit of God, is actually what creates sin. And that uh, sin is really the evil aspect of God. I don't know how else to explain it. Uh, I don't know much. I haven't studied too much about the what the Hasidic concept of sin is in oh. terms of how how they view it. You want to get into some really weird stuff with Kabbalah or the Kabbalah. Uh, the, the theology of self is that we we are reflections of God. So I can't, when I say my arm, it's not actually, I. that's just an illusion. It's just a reflection. The true arm is actually God's arm. So I'm just a reflection of God. So then you have the, uh, I mean, there's all sorts of very, very weird things. For instance, that there is no, that actually there is no sin. It's actually God sinning through me, all those kind of things. Um, so basically, okay, let's get back to the book review. So basically what the, what uh, this person is saying, Joel Magid is saying, help me out here, Rob, because you've read the whole book. What's his end point in this book? Well, he, he traces how... Jewish scholars over the last hundred years have tried to compare Christianity and Hasidism with the notion, because you have, you know, with the rise of, of the state of Israel and Hebrew as a, a, a new modern language, you have all sorts of secular knowledge coming into to the Jewish world. And part of that is, is, is pictures of Jesus, you know, who is Yeshua. So you have different scholars at different times wrestling like, well, what do we do with Yeshua? You know, some say, well, he was, he was an Orthodox Jew, but, but Paul made a new religion. You know, some people cut it there. Um, some say he's a false messiah. In the past, have said he was a false messiah. But now you have the emergence of people saying, no, he's a failed messiah. In other words, and the difference is, well, Yeshua believed that he was on a messianic mission and we should grant him that this is these jewish scholars are saying that and it wasn't until he died that you can judge that he is a failed messiah because of course they're not believing in the in the resurrection but anyway so magid is looking at all that and looking at hasidism as it's been taught and talking about this picture of how incarnation is an important word. That's why it's called Hasidism incarnate. He wants to say the word incarnation can no longer be a a turnaway card that a Jew will dismiss a Christian's point. So, if, like, if I'm Jewish, whatever, you know, I'm a Orthodox Jew, and you're a Christian, and you tell me, oh, you're telling me about the incarnation. Magid is saying, well, in old school, you know, times before, people would say, oh, incarnation, nothing to do with Judaism. That's a different religion. Magid's saying, no, you can't do that. That's, that's not, that's like a straw man. Because we can look and see many sources that it looks like incarnation, it sounds like incarnation, it smells like incarnation, but Jews have not wanted to use that term 
because they don't want it to look Christian. So what what uh, Magid is doing is trying to break down that wall, saying there are things that look very close and that we can no longer differentiate Christianity from Judaism on the terms of this thing called incarnation. That's all he's trying to do. Is that... Does that make sense? Yeah, actually, one of the things. So, one of the things that I want to say now, or one of the, one of the places I want to move to now, is that it's interesting how you kind of have Judaism and Christianity following the same path. Because right around the same time as you have the Baal Shem Tov and all these guys basically starting and expanding uh, the Kabbalah into what is now Hasidic Judaism, you have the same kind of thing happening in Christianity, where you have the Quakers emerging. The Quakers were called Quakers because they shook and they rolled around and all sorts of things during their prayer and their praise time. And the the Hasidic idea of of experiencing God was that if you prayed the right way, if you said the right prayers, and uh, you know there was all sorts of different rituals. You weren't you, you had to begin to prepare yourself for prayer an hour before you could pray. You had to. Uh, use the restroom uh, before you prayed. You had to do all these different things to get yourself into the right um, mindset to pray. And then once you did start praying, you had to do it in a certain way and all these d- different things. And basically what these guys did, the, Hasid- the, the Hasidic uh, leaders did, was they would put themselves into trances. And um, this is how they experienced God, is through these trances. And some of the, uh, they had to do certain mind things too. They had to, I mean, in, in Buddhism, what do you do? You, to do transcendental meditation, you think about nothingness. You think about how everything is nothing. Free your mind, uh, make your mind empty. This is, uh, you know, th- this is how you, transcendental meditation is done. Well, guess what? The same thing is taught in Hasidic prayer, which is that God created from nothing. Therefore, we are all really nothing. So we must... Uh, in Hasidic prayer, they, you're supposed to think about nothingness. You're supposed to dwell on nothingness. And uh, once you can really grasp nothingness, you will uh, elevate to a new realm or to a new enlightenment. And so uh, these these kind of concepts have a very strong parallel, I think, in Eastern religion and what I would call, well, yeah, Buddhism, Hinduism, those kind of things. So, um, But the Quakers... And the Shakers, yes, the Quakers and the Shakers, they were emerging right around the same time. And what came out of the Quakers and the Shakers and and all and these kind of offshoots of Christian of of mainstream Christianity? Well, you had the charismatic offshoot, right? And what does the charismatic offshoot say in Christianity? And not to bash any of our charismatic brothers and sisters, uh, but what does the charismatic uh, uh, faith say? That and I we get this all the time from from the charismatic side. Oh, you guys are relying too much on your education, and it's the exact same thing that the Hasids said about the the mainstream Judaism. It's not about it's not about the study. It's not about the book smart. It's about experiencing God. And what happened? And there's probably some. I don't know how far. I don't think Magid addresses it in this book, but. What happened with Hasidism in the 1700s, 1800s, all of a sudden you had new community formations, new social groups. Mm-hmm. And that made the traditional rabbis really upset because now people were not coming to synagogue. They were gathering around these guys called a tzaddik, and they weren't praying. At the day. I mean, they might have still been doing some of the same prayers, but they added different kinds of elements to their prayer life. Oh, one of the big um, – one of the big – one of the big uh... – and, and one of the things that the, the rabbis didn't like is that, wait a minute, they're – they're not 
they're, they're just becoming over emotional yeah. and losing their ground. That was one of the issues are up. Both, it's not that the uh, Baal Shem Tov and Abba Hasidim were Kabbalists and the traditionals weren't. No, they were all reading, the, they all saw the Zohar as, as authoritative. They were all Kabbalists, but they were, they, they looked at the human person differently. Yeah, and the Baal Shem Tov was basically saying, no, you guys are reading the, the Zohar wrong. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, the later, well, Luria. Yeah, Luria was the one who really Isaac did that. Luria said, if you're not reading it, you know, he was the, I'm, let me tell you how to read the Zohar, for, <laughs> for example, in the 1500s. And that's right after, you know, and there's other things you got to think about, and this is what scholars write about. This is right after the, the expulsion in 1492, and you have Jews yeah. worried about exile and the pain of exile. And so they start thinking of the exile of souls, the doctrine of transmigration of souls or reincarnation, and this effort to return to the, to the creation moment, return to the beginning of all things. And then um, that's when you know Luria and those guys come right on the heels of that. And I think Gershom Sholem was one of the big 20th century Jewish authors who uh, talked about that, the influence of the, the crisis of the expulsion from Spain with all of a sudden all bunch of uh, Kabbalistic stuff being, and then the printing press, you ma match that with the printing press, you have all sorts of books being published um, and sold throughout Europe. And then you have Christian Kabbalah. You have a, the Zohar translated into Latin. You have all these Christians in this time frame in Italy and elsewhere that are uh, thinking that there's parallelism between Kabbalah and the message of Jesus, for example. I think that, and I guess my end point is this. And this is, I mean, I, I suppose I can give the end point of my paper at the UMJA conference. Cause, but the end point is this. There's nothing, I don't think that there's anything wrong with mystical experience, right? Paul has it. Paul says that he knew a man, I mean, I, I think we all agree, everyone agrees that, that when Paul says, I knew a man who went to the third heaven, he's talking about himself, right? So Paul had this mystical experience. Yeshua comes to him and, and, and speaks to him, right? Um, so there's not anything wrong. And we have, uh, throughout the Bible, we have all these different people. You know, Moses had all these mystical experiences. You have all these people having mystical experiences. There's nothing wrong with having a mystical experience. I think what the problem is, and what is idolatry? That's really the real question. Idolatry is the idea that we can somehow control God. That if I say a prayer this way, if I give my idol this fruit or whatever, if I give him a, you know, a gift, then I'll catch that spirit while he's, you know, coming to get the gift and I can then manipulate him into doing things for me. What I think is wrong with uh, the mystical experiences that you have from, and, you know, from, from the Hasidic uh, offshoots and Hasidism in general, and then also from, and I hate to step on toes here, but also from the charismatic movement. We have a little bit of this going on, not to the same extent by any means, but you know, you have this idea that if I, if I uh, am in a worship service and I, you know, uh, the, the spirit will come on me, I'll speak in tongues, that gets me closer to God. There's two points here. Number one, 
Mystical experiences cannot be forced. We should wait for God to give us the mystical experience. If he never does, then so be it. But we shouldn't try to do things to gain a mystical experience. That, in my mind, is idolatry. And not only that, but it opens the door for other things than God-given mystical experience. So that's number one. Number two is that we can't... A person who has... (laughs) A person who has a mystical experience is not necessarily closer to God than a person who doesn't. Just because just because Paul had a mystical experience doesn't necessarily make him more spiritual and and closer to God than the person who didn't have that mystical experience. And I think that we should also remember that it that we think of a mystical experience as some awe-inspiring, mind-blowing uh, third dimensional kind of fourth dimensional, whatever you want to say, kind of experience. is just totally mind blowing, uh, you know, out of body experience, whatever. I think that we have a mystical experience every time that we pray. It doesn't have to be mind blowing. It doesn't have to be out of this world. It doesn't have to, the fact that we can enter into the presence of the most high through Yeshua, the true Zadik, and we can commune with God that we have been cleansed by the blood of the Messiah Yeshua and able to once again commune with God, that in in and of itself is a completely mystical experience. And if you don't see that, something might be wrong. Caleb, uh, good point. You know, and one of the things I think about is this word mystical, you know. It's like, how do I know whether an experience is mystical or not? You know, it, and that gets into a whole different angle. But here, here's, a, here's a question. Another aspect to your paper has to do with counterfeit, the idea of counterfeit. Could you talk a little bit about that? We've talked about the other aspect of comparison um, and where things have stemmed from maybe Eastern sources or whatever. But what about the counterfeit claim? Because you just said Yeshua is the true tzaddik. So... Talk to me about that. Well, we see that all the time, right? We see that all the time in in uh, the evil one uh, loves to to make counterfeits, doesn't he? God creates the institution of marriage. What do we see in our nation going on? In the U.S. nation going on right now, the counterfeit of of marriage, you know, through homosexual relationship. Okay, we have this all the you know the same thing happens. Uh, and, and let's not just pick on the homosexuals. The same thing happens with the person who says, oh, well, I'm living with my girlfriend and that's okay. You know, I don't need to be married. Uh, those kind of things. Um, you know, we, we see counterfeits all the time going on, uh, within different religions. What I think is, is happening in Hasidic Judaism. You have some of the truth, but it's given to, to something else. It's a counterfeit of the truth. And the idea of the Tzadik is definitely one of them. Uh, you have a lot of what I see, uh, theology from scripture and from the apostolic scriptures from the New Testament coming into Judaism, but it's being perverted and it's being done so through other, uh, influences like Eastern, uh, Eastern influences and just from, uh, I think honestly from the occult, I know that that's harsh, but I think that, that, uh, you know, Satan has really, really enjoyed, uh, giving the Jewish people 
this counterfeit that is that is horribly uh, I, I it's just wrong. It's not only wrong. I think that it, it comes from uh, a place that is not from God. And so, um, what I see happening with the men, one of the one of the reasons that I wanted to write this paper is because what one of the reason one of the things I see in the messianic movement is we see people coming in uh, to uh, to this messianic faith and wanting to attach themselves to all things Jewish. And what they see from the outside is piety. They see piety in, in Hasidic Judaism. They see, oh man, look at these people. They wear black and white all the time. You know, they have these haircuts that they're just, so, you know, they never shave their beards. They're so pious, you know, all these kind of things. Uh, they're, they're so disciplined when it comes to prayer and, and all these things. It's very alluring, isn't it? It's very, you know, I myself have wanted to attach myself to that because I feel, you know, at the time I felt like if I can become that strict, it'll bring me closer to God. The strictness will, you know, is really following Torah to the, you know, making that the goal of everything that I do, which in a way is true, you know, making that the goal of everything that you do, uh, always focusing on God is going to uh, change your life. And so there's this allure to that. The problem is, is that the Messianics don't see that that Hasidism or the ultra-Orthodox as they see them, there's a lot more going on there. It's not just piety. It's not just being very stringent when it comes to the commandments. No, it is a whole theology and a whole uh, a whole belief system that is based on things that are not biblical. In fact, I would say that they are anti-biblical. You know, the Hasids are very into amulets. They pray to the dead. I remember being with a Hasid in Jerusalem. He didn't know I was Messianic. We went to the tomb of David, and he said, okay, now you can bow your head and, and just ask uh, ask David to, to bless you in, in our walk today. And I thought, why in the world would I do that? But in Hasidic Judaism, you're able to talk to, to the dead. And that's obviously against, I mean, the Torah specifically tells us not to speak to the dead. I think that there's also, uh, it's, I think it's earlier, I think the Safed mystics like Luria and Cordovero, et cetera, they would go to the, the rabbi's graves and lay down on them. And like put their, you know, like lay down their bodies on the graves to try to absorb, like somehow to absorb message or or energy or something from that sage. Yeah, weird, weird stuff. But Caleb, okay, so to play devil's advocate here, what if someone said, well, if you're talking to a Hasid and they say, well, I've read your New Testament and uh, Jesus called John the Baptist Elijah. So why are you telling me my belief in reincarnation is wrong if your own Bible has reincarnation? Because it's not reincarnation. He says if you're able to understand, right? Uh, he's one like Elijah. He, he's the representative. He's representative of Elijah. And the reason why is because Elijah will really come in the end before, before the Messiah comes, right? We still are waiting for Elijah to come before that great and terrible day of the Lord. But we needed one like Elijah to proclaim the Messiah the first time. And I would say, I mean, to, to that I would say we see in, even in, uh, in Judaism uh, and in, in Judaism before the coming of the Messiah, the first, you know, his first coming, uh, 
we see this idea of two messiahs or of a suffering messiah. I don't think it's two messiahs, obviously. I think it's a suffering messiah and a and a reigning messiah, a kingly messiah. And so uh, I, uh, you know, as I see that as the same messiah coming twice. Uh, we needed someone to to proclaim him in, in the beginning, right? And that's why Yeshua says that John is like, you know, if we are able to understand, John is like Elijah the prophet. Uh, I wanted to, uh, real quick, I wanted to touch on this. Robert Stiles, uh, I'm sorry, Sales? I, Robert, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering your name. Um, he says, uh, I still haven't, and he, he says, if you can't force, um, hang on, I get it back. If you can't force a mystical experience, how is it? not given by God when it occurs. My point is, is that uh, I don't think that uh, that's his first comment. I'll, I'll get to his second comment here in a second. I don't think when you try to force a, a mystical experience, for instance, as the Hasids do, when they put themselves into what I consider a trance state, they do so by uh, uh, meditating. It's just like transcendental meditation. They meditate on on nothingness. They, you know, there's all these different uh, things to do to get yourself worked up into this into this trance state. Other combinations of different letter of the tetragrammaton and stuff like that. Yeah, there's different. Exactly. And so basically, what you're trying to do is you're trying to control God. And by doing so, they open. I believe that they open themselves to something that is not God. And so this, when they now see these visions and when they now encounter these spirits that they're talking to and these reincarnations of Elijah and all these people that they're talking to on this other side, and, and when they're entering the, the throne room of God, I don't believe that that's real. I believe it's a counterfeit. But I do believe that the mystical experience that Paul had on the road to, uh, you know, uh, on the road when, when Yeshua knocked him off his horse, I believe that, that was a real mystical experience. But, but Paul was not sitting in a field somewhere, turning left, then saying this prayer, then turning around and saying this prayer, and then bowing and all this kind of stuff to try to put himself into a trance. And that's my point, is that for, when we try to manipulate God into giving us a mystical experience, we open the door to a mystical experience that is not from God. It's from somewhere else, just like transcendental meditation. And then Robert follows up and he says, I still haven't had a chance to listen to the podcast a few weeks ago on speaking in tongues. Really wish I'd been able to hear that live. Now, let's talk about that for just a second. I think that speaking in tongues, the true form of speaking in tongues as the apostles did in the gospels was certainly uh was certainly a mystical experience okay uh and and i think that uh i as i said in that show a couple weeks ago i don't fall into the idea that someone that god can't give the gift of tongues again however we are given specific ways that that is supposed to play out within the community if we're in the community, it, we have to have witnesses. There has to be there has to be uh, three people speaking in tongues, and and they all have to be uh, they have to be translated. Those tongues have to be translated, and they have to go in turn. That's not what we see in the Pentecostal Church today. And so, since the Pentecostal Church is not willing to go according to the way that, that God has put it, has put forth how that is supposed to be conducted, it's not from God. You can't say, I'm going to go against the Bible and do something. It's from God. That It doesn't work like that. That's how we get Islam, and that's how we get Mormonism. 
So to say that I'm speaking in tongues, it's this gibberish, and uh, and it's not being translated. There's you know, and everyone's going, everyone's speaking in this tongue at the same time. Visitors think that you're crazy because no no one knows what's going on, right? It's not edifying to the body, and that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 14 talks about. And that's why it lays out specific rules on how to do that. Now, if a Pentecostal church wants to have at least three people speaking in tongues, go in order, and be and have it translated, okay, let's talk. Let's talk about that then. But is that a mystical experience if that were to happen? Yes, if it's done correctly, and it's really from God, then yes, that is a mystical experience, isn't it? I think so. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I have trouble, like I said earlier, I have trouble with the term mystical. I mean, because I, I don't know what it means. It, I, I don't know what it means. It, it seems like it means, I mean, the word mystery is used. The mystery that Paul talks about is Messiah in you, the hope of glory. That's that's what the Bible calls a mystery, mysterion. Um. Paul's point in in his we're talking about the third heaven, etc., is that is where he gets to the end. He says, "You know what? What I learned is that it's through my weakness that Yeshua's does the work. It's Yeshua's strength that is shown, not his own boasting, not his own um, oh, let's, my knowledge. Guess what I know, or guess what I." I had this experience, or therefore I'm an authoritative teacher or prophet. That Paul seems to be saying, well, you know what? I've had experiences too. But in the end, it's, it's uh, re- learning to rejoice in the sufferings for the sake of Messiah's name. And it's really down to earth. You know, it's not a, it's not a rejection of, it's not to say sufferings mean that I'm not in God's will. Um it's we're, we're to rejoice in all things. And if God gives somebody, you know, like you were saying, I guess if someone gives, it gets an experience where they feel like they're in a different kind of, uh, kind of state. And maybe they, they're just feeling a, a profound sense of God's shalom, or they feel like, you know, that they see something clearer than they normally would see. Then maybe you could call that maybe a mystical or out of normal experience, um, and I think if that comes back, if if there's no denial of Yeshua as Messiah, right? Because it says test all the spirits, right? And if it's it, br- it brings someone to gratitude and humility and joy of of Messiah and, and what he did, rather than a personal um, boasting or something, hey, look at what I've done. Um, and it is not contradictory to any of the scriptures, then, you know, praise God, you know. Um, Robert says, true, Caleb, but that is for community, and I've seen it implemented. Um, I've seen it implemented that way. Personal prayer language would have different rules. And Lois, uh, Lois Morgan replies perfectly, Robert, where do you find personal prayer language in scripture? Um, here's the problem with personal prayer language. We just do not see any examples of it whatsoever in the word. And so I have to, isn't it, isn't that what the, isn't that what people mean when they talk about, Oh, I don't have,
of the scripture. It's in there. It's in First Corinthians. Like, yeah, the language between you and God. Yeah, like he edifies himself. Yeah. Uh, the person who's edifying themselves. Maybe that's what they're talking about. That's the what, person who, that is what they're talking about. But the point is, is that that's the only passage that you would have that would that would uh, refer to anything like that, first of all. And um, you can't build doctrine off of one. I mean, that's one of the rules of hermeneutics. Um, number two is that we don't see any examples of anyone in Scripture ever doing it. Anything like that. So in my mind... Taking that rule of of hermeneutics, I would have to assume that that is talking about something else, right? I can't take that hermeneutic and build doctrine off of it, or take that one passage of scripture and say, "Oh, I'm going to build an entire doctrine off of it," um, because I don't see it anywhere else in scripture, and I don't see any examples of it in scripture. That would be like taking in in chapter 15 where he talks about people praying for the dead or something like that. Mm-hmm. And people take it, like I think Mormons do, you know. They like you can repent. Baptism can, like, for the baptize dead. Baptize your yeah. yeah. Thank you. That's the one. Yeah. Um, and taking that and saying, oh, well, there you go. Yeah. When when the context is kind of vague, we don't know exactly. He, he's mentioning it, but he's not endorsing it, etc. Well, he's talking about when you have a mikvah for being for corpse defilement. Anyway, okay. Oh, that, that's a good point. I never thought of it that way. Well, that's what he's talking about, right? Read the I passage. Was, read the passage again. I think he's talking about corpse defilement. There, he says baptism for the a mikvah for the dead. What? When do we do a mikvah for the dead? But yeah, you're you're absolutely right, you, Rob. Your point is absolutely right. You can't just take that passage of scripture and then all of a sudden be doing baptisms for the dead. It doesn't work like that, right? <laughs> so anyway, okay. Are we good? Are we done for the day? You got anything? I I, I wanted that. I think we're good. I think we're good. I think we. My hope is that because we didn't have show notes that our listeners aren't like, man, these guys are like all over the place. Quick right, quick left, speed up, slow down. Oh, hang on. I, I, I did want I did, I did to answer just a couple of these. Now, we'll, we'll take some of the comments that were posted on that Facebook page and we'll actually make, uh, you know, we'll do shows on some of that stuff. There's a couple of them that I just wanted to touch on real quick. Mike Potts wrote in. He said, what happens when we die? Sleep till resurrection, go to heaven or whatever. Well, uh, we've stated on this uh, program many times before that, maybe not many times, one time before that uh, we just don't have enough in the scripture to let us know. Uh, we can't. We have our our own ideas, but we can, it's impossible to be, be dogmatic about that. You have the robber on the cross who says, "Today, uh, Yeshua says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise." Um, you also have the passage where uh, he says, uh, "Is God the God of the dead?" It says that He's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So his point is, is that if you know, obviously, obviously Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't dead right now because. God isn't the God of the dead. Um, so that makes me think that there is something different than uh, soul sleep, as people have termed it. However, I don't. I can't be dogmatic about it. About it. I guess. I guess I'll find out when I die, or we'll find out when the Messiah comes back. Um, and then Grace writes in: I would be interested to know your thoughts on Yeshua's saying, "Why do you call me good? No one is good but God." How does this statement? fit in with his divine nature? This is a great question. Oh, I, that's a, can I talk about that? Please. I, that's a good question. I've heard that before. Um, I think uh, one, the way I understand it is that the guy's trying to butter Yeshua up. That's right. Oh, good teacher. 
Yeshua sees it. He's like trying to use flattery, and he's like, "Why are you calling me good? Why?" That's it's 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 the it's the back then equivalent to our modern. You don't know me, <laughs> right? Like, oh, hey, Caleb, how's it going? You don't know me. Like, why why are you trying to butter me up? That's that's my sense, uh, but I've I've heard people ask that before because it, if you read it as literal meaning like Yeshua is literally meaning don't call me good because there's only one person one who's good and that's God that there's a distancing there but that that's the, but that's not the way that the story goes yeah that's I, I think the guy's trying to uh, you know Yeshua sees right through him and he's like did, no no no, no. Give, I'm not she give the uh, the verse no that? she didn't okay we could find it real quick, but I don't have a right, I have to look at it but I think there's it's a parallel account it's like the rich young ruler kind of thing but in one gospel, he says good. In the other gospel, it doesn't even address that part of the interaction. Uh, our friends, our good friend in uh, Sweden, Par, I, I st- he told me how to say his name, and I forgot already. He says, uh, Jesus' relation to oral Torah and to what extent oral, sh- oral law should guide our halakha. That is an extremely large topic, and maybe we should make that an entire topic Um for an entire show. I can tell you this though. Somebody else said that we, they felt like we were bashing Talmud on, uh, they, they made that comment on, on my uh, YouTube page. Let oh, me really? Ju- yeah. Oh. Let me just say this. <clears throat> we're not bashing Talmud. I read, I have uh, volumes of Talmud in my house. I read Talmud from time to time. Uh, last Yom Kippur, I sat down and I wrote, I read the entire tractate on Yom Kippur. Um, I, I, it's not that we're bashing Talmud or that we're bashing Mishnah. It's that we we are taking it for what it is. I don't believe that that, that is oral Torah for me. My oral Torah, as it were, the oral law, as it were, comes in the... It, we have one from our Messiah. We have his oral Torah, his oral law, his law that was written down by his disciples. It's given to us in the in the... Uh, gospels. And then what do you have? You have his Talmudim, his students giving you more uh, oral law in the rest of the, of the, uh, of the apostolic scriptures of the new Testament. We have oral law and I live by it. I think it's scripture. It's called the new Testament. It's called the apostolic scriptures. So the Talmud and the Mishnah, we have to take them for what they are. They're much later than, than our oral Torah, our oral law, which is the apostolic scriptures. They're much later than that. So what, what we can't do is read them back into the first century and say that this is what Yeshua had as the Talmud of the Mishnah in the first century. The Talmud doesn't come around until the sixth century. So hundreds and hundreds of years after Yeshua is on earth. So why would I take that as, as, as life governing? Now, I know I've interviewed uh, Dr. Instone Brewer before. He is uh, kind of, he's kind of championed the idea that there was an, a good amount of the Mishnah extant in Yeshua's time. And he's trying to, uh, he has projects where he's trying to show uh, what parts of the oral Torah that were in the Mishnah actually date back to the first century. I don't agree with his work on that, to be honest with you. Um, but hey, there are people who believe it. There's another gentleman who actually uh, is a messianic. He's convinced that Perkei Avot, which is the latest book in the Mishnah, uh, Perkei Avot is uh, is 
basically that Yeshua touches on per vote. In other words, that it was extant in Yeshua's day. This is not bashing the Talmud or the Mishnah. It's taking the Talmud or the Mishnah in its historical context and taking it for what it is. I don't believe it was God-breathed. I don't believe it was handed down at Sinai to Moses. I believe yeah, it's it was. Like with with uh, most of Perkei Avot is sayings of like Rabbi Akiva and later. Yeah. So to say, and he's, you know, second century, late first century, you know, but really second century. And uh, yeah. So and it's anyway, it, I, I found those call me good. I, it's in two places. It's in Mark 10 and in Luke 18. Why do you call me good? And in both cases, the person went away. They did not follow Yeshua. In, in both cases that we have that story, I know I'm kind of taking us back uh, to something we talked about a minute ago, but I, want, I was curious. So it is uh, Mark 10, Luke 18, and in both cases, the person that's calling Yeshua a good teacher ends up leaving when he says, sell, you know, sell everything, give to the poor and follow me. They, they go away because they can't do it. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I, yeah, just to make sure people understand, I, I, I do want to f- just say this about Talmud and Mishnah, that I find Talmud and Mishnah to be very helpful when we are looking at Judaisms from the late second, early third century and the sixth century. I think it speaks directly to the Judaisms of that time and what was going exactly. on. And that's what, that's what it's meant to. Yeah. That, that's what it's for. That it, the rabbis didn't write the Talmud so Christians could later read it and try to understand the Gospels better. I mean, like, to, as a background. Yeah. You know, this, this is not the way it works. There is some... Wi- many books have been sold based on that supposition. Yeah, exactly. There is some wisdom in the, in the Talmud and Mishnah, too, but we can't take it as God-breathed, I don't think. And so if you want to see that as bashing the Talmud and the Mishnah, okay, uh, you know, so be it. I, I don't see it that way. Okay, let's uh, let's wrap it up, I guess. Uh, keep your emails and your um, yeah your ideas coming to us because um, it's important for us to be able to see what you guys want us to talk about. We want to thank everybody who's in the chat room today. It's been good. I hope that uh, you know that we're kind enough to everyone and that uh, people realize we're just trying to answer things. We're not trying to pick on anyone specifically. Um, yeah. Uh, the one thing I'd say about Kabbalah, if you are starting to get into Kabbalah, please think twice. It's very, very, in my opinion, dangerous and something that uh, that we we as believers don't need to get into because I, honestly, I don't think it glorifies our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. <laughs>